Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm speaking to Dr. Courtney Raspin, who is a chartered psychologist registered with the Health and Care Professions Council. Courtney is working to raise awareness of eating disorders, the significant effects the pandemic has had on sufferers, and how good therapy can enable people to understand and manage their symptoms, as well as start to live fuller, happier, and more meaningful lives. Now, Courtney was born and raised in LA, California, the daughter of an influential media psychologist, Dr. Tony Grant, and a physician, she grew up with a keen interest in both mental and physical health. Courtney moved to London in 2000 and worked for 10 years in the NHS before launching her private clinic, Oldham Health, in 2010. Oldham Health is London's premier private psychology practice, specialising in the treatment of eating disorders and body image difficulties. To date, it has treated over 500 patients. Following a significantly high increase in inquiries during the UK's lockdown, Courtney is now actively engaged in raising awareness of how increased stress is affecting young people during the pandemic. She's also exploring how this is stimulating a resurgence of mental health issues, including eating disorders, what causes them, what keeps them going, and the therapies that can help. Alongside her work at Altum Health, Courtney is an Associate Fellow of the British Psychological Society and regularly lectures in the Counselling Psychology Doctoral Programme at City University. A member of the Eating Disorders Association, BEAT, she has appeared in documentaries and contributed to numerous articles on not only eating disorders and body image, but mental health in general. Courtney is a full-time working mum with two children, has been married for over 20 years and also plays mum to the family's cockapoo, Luna, who is hoping to become a fully trained therapy dog in residence at Oldham Health. How wonderful. I'm really looking forward to this conversation to understand more about Courtney's history and how she came to work in eating disorders and to explore the work of Eltham Health and the work the clinic does with patients with eating disorders, understanding treatment approaches and which therapies are particularly effective. We'll also talk about the impact of the pandemic on young people's mental health and the surge in eating disorder referrals. I'm really looking forward to this today. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Courtney. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, Courtney, please could you just introduce yourself to the listeners? Absolutely. So, my name is Courtney Raspin, and I am a psychologist working here in London. I am an eating disorder specialist and did about 10 years in the NHS and have been working privately ever since. And I am the head of a lovely company called Altum Health here in London. And I say it's lovely because I love our team. We have a team of psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, dietitians, and we're all really committed to just improving the lives of our clients and particularly those struggling with food and their body and eating disorders. Oh, thank you. So Courtney, you were raised in Los Angeles, is that right? That is correct. You've done your homework. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I'm very interested because you had a media psychologist as a dad, or have had, or I don't know, and, and a mum who's a physician, doctor. So, you know, t- tell us more. Did that really sort of influence your interest in health as you were growing up? Absolutely. And actually, it was my mother who's the clinical psychologist and my father who was the physician. So my mother is a clinical psychologist and is considered the grandmother of media psychology. Mm -hmm. She was one of the first major radio personalities in America. And in 1975, she was heard syndicated throughout the US. And her name was Dr. Tony Grant. And it's interesting because when Frazier started, Kelsey Grammer came and sat in with my mom. And the setup with, you know, Roz and Frazier is exactly the way it was with her screener, who was Richard. (laughs) And then as a child, I used to go and I used to sit and I used to watch her. And so, of course, that was a huge influence on me. And my father, he was a physician. And I think for sure, he was a great teacher and taught me all about the body. He ran an emergency care service for a period of time. So I used to go on the weekends because my parents were divorced. So on the weekends, I'd I'd go with him and I used to sit and watch him stitch people up. (laughs) And so I got a really early exposure to a lot of medical stuff. So so yeah, I think it all kind of came together in my interest in eating disorders in the end. (laughs) Mm, Gosh, it sounds like it. And do you feel as well, because I think, I don't know, I think with my children, the worst thing for them sometimes to have a mother who's a psychologist, you know, they kind of like find that really, really cringy and are always teasing me. Yep. Yep. I get that from mine. <laughs> but do you think as well, having parents who are sort of really, you know, working in health, psychology and the physical side, do you think, think that really kind of benefited you in terms of like being more self-aware, being more insightful and reflective as a child? Yes, I think absolutely. I mean, of course, I had the same, you know, reservations and complaints towards my mom that my children have towards me. (laughs) And, you know, we all try and and do a little bit better the next generation around. But I just remember even just the books in the house, you know, and, and the conversations that were had around the dinner table. I really do feel that it was just kind of in my blood. My grandfather was a dentist. My uncle was a dentist, you know, so I kind of feel like medicine isn't there. My sister's a psychiatrist. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think with the medical side, you know, I considered going to medical school, but I honestly just found the organic chemistry too difficult. Mm -hmm. And so I did a year and then went, "Mm, no. (laughs) And then I did psychology. But I do think I was ahead of the game because I had these these influences. And, And I think my mom... I think she was a wounded healer herself. And I think that she did her very best to change her dynamic from generation, one generation to the next. I think, you know, like she did a decent job. So she's passed now. But yeah, she's definitely influenced, you know, the woman that I am and the psychologist that I am today. Mm, Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And I think it, it raises such an important point, doesn't it? I think, you know, our parents are generally doing the best they can, aren't they? And, and we're all trying to do, like, yeah, like you're saying, one step better maybe than the previous generation, but who yep. can happen? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I know, I, I always tell this story that I kind of lost it on my daughter. And then she came down the next day and she said, I said, are we okay? And she says, sometimes I can't believe you're a psychologist. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> oh, the great thing is, though, is we can we can re repair these ruptures, can't we? We can say sorry and we can, you know, make up again. And that's so much an important part of the healing process. <laughs> I couldn't say it better. Absolutely. Just as long as you apologize when you've messed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, Courtney, you've ended up specializing in eating disorders and body image, although I know your clinic, you know, covers a whole range of different mental health sure. issues. What about your sort of own relationship with food and body image growing up? And um, how did that go? Yes, well, you know, I grew up in L.A. and my mother was in the media spotlight and she had issues with her eating growing up for sure. And I actually think those persisted into her adulthood, although those weren't ever talked about overtly in retrospect, the way she talked about food, the way she talked about dieting, the way she valued physical appearance it was just it you know it just came through her and her own insecurities and so I think I was exposed in that way very early on to what I think we would very much call disordered a disordered approach to food or at least a kind of upset an unhealthy obsession with food which was quite normalized at that mm. time amongst women unfortunately and also with men but so I think that and it was a very appearance focused society LA. Mm -hmm. I started off a dance major and I did some modeling when I was younger. I, I was Miss Dallas County. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in LA, but then I moved to Texas. And I think that's all very appearance focused. And I, I think because, you know, also I had the reinforcement at home, that kind of focusing on the modeling side and the physical beauty was valued and important that I say what I had was a taste of an eating disorder. I was never mm -hmm. diagnosed. Well, no, I, you know, I never needed to be hospitalized. I never mm -hmm. lost my periods. What I say to people is that I, I have a few moments in my mind where I remember standing in front of the mirror and holding a skirt or a piece of clothing that was far too large for me. Mm -hmm. And I could see that it was far too large, but I still felt bigger that I'd ever felt in my life. And that kind of, that distortion, almost that psychosis, you know, being very, very real and being, feeling very, very frightened and losing a lot of weight in a short period of time and being too thin for me and it taking up an incredible amount of time in my head. I always say I tried to throw up once. It didn't go so well for me. I think if I had made different choices in what I had eaten, I could be telling a very different story. Mm. So I think, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, then Texas, which is also a very appearance focused society, Dallas, Texas, I think being a dancer for a period of time and doing some modeling, it's when I kind of decided to stop doing that. And I moved more towards medicine and psychology and my studies mm -hmm. that I think, you know, people always say like, how did you move away from it? And it's such a big question, isn't it, Harry? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that's when I started to move away from it. Mm, sure. And I think, I guess it's not surprising, is it really, when you sort of hear about your experiences, like, you know, doing some modeling, like winning the competition, like getting all this yeah. praise and validation, like your mum being in the media spotlight, let yes. alone the fact that we kind of, where you were living and the impact of diet culture. Mm. I think anyone in your shoes would have been quite vulnerable to all of that. I was, I was. And it's interesting because I think I also, and, and this is something I'm really interested in, started to attract people around me that reinforced that, 
you know, for example, like the, the men that I dated were men that almost watched my weight for me because, you know, you tend to gravitate towards people that reinforce your own insecurities and ways of being. So I think, you know, I started to just kind of change, really think about my value system, I think, and choose different people. And then everything just started to happen naturally over time. And I just moved away from it, but I could have very well gotten sucked down it. It's compelling. As you know, it's, you know, it's down a rabbit hole. Mm. Yeah. And I think you, again, raised such an important point there about, you know, for sort of change to happen, I think we do really often need to reconnect with our deepest values, don't we? Because I think it's so easy to get sucked in by that external validation, maybe about appearance, aesthetics, what other people think. But it sounds like for you, it was a sort of natural gravitation, perhaps more, you know, away from that, meeting different people, you know, and that really helps yeah. you change. Yeah, and I think it's it's important to say that, you know, it may have started with kind of an appearance focus, but then it becomes a way of kind of control, controlling mm. things that, well, this is a way that I'm valued. You know, when yeah. I stay this way and when I look a particular way, then I get love and attention. And I think I always say there's a real curse about being, quote unquote, a pretty girl. Mm. Because especially in my day, and thank goodness this is changing now, you know, we are more outwardly valuing our young men and women for their internal characteristics and resources rather than come, oh, aren't you a pretty little girl? But, you know, that's a recent change. When Mm. I was growing up, it wasn't like that. But what you learn is that you have to stay pretty in order to keep Mm. getting affection and care. And so that becomes, I think, a and that when you're not, that you get less attention and care. And that's, so I think for me, it was about, well, what is it? Who am I? You know, what is it that I want to be valued for? And of course, therapy helped too. I entered therapy, (laughs) had a great therapist (laughs) in uni, Mm -hmm. and she was tremendously helpful for me. Mm. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. And you moved to the UK in 2000. So can I ask kind of what prompted that big move? (laughs) An Australian husband. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was doing my master's and my PhD. I think I was at the end of my master's and my husband, who's Australian, but was living in London, Mm -hmm. was working in Dallas where I was doing my degree. And we met in a corporate apartment in the same apartment complex and that was that. <laughs> mm, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was 22 when we met. Mm-hmm. And we've been married 21 years. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's worthy of congratulations. Marriage is tough. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. <laughs> and then you initially worked in the NHS in the UK. Is that right? That's correct. I did 10 years at the Royal Free Eating Disorders, Adult Eating Disorder Service in their day program and outpatient program. And those were really great years. It's where I really learned. I just learned so much about the language of eating disorders and also about day patient and outpatient care and working in a multidisciplinary team. We, we really did have an amazing team, nurses, occupational therapists. We had a massage therapist on the team, art therapists, drama therapists, great psychiatrists, mm-hmm. occupational therapists, wonderful psychiatric nurses. We're in groups and did meals with clients and individual therapy. And it was, it was a really rich time in the NHS mm-hmm. for me. Enjoyed my mm-hmm. years there a lot. Sure. 
Sounds like a really wonderful holistic approach there, actually, with so many different specialists coming together. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's no one approach for everybody. And so I think we were able to offer whatever people needed, whatever people came with, we were able to kind of tailor things a little bit at that time in the NHS. Sure. Mm. Oh. And had you always wanted to have your own clinic? Had that been a sort of dream of yours? Particularly, I mean, you know, we don't have the benefit and the blessing of socialized healthcare in the US. And so mm. when I moved here, I was just amazed at this wonderful thing called the NHS. And, you know, as we know, it's, it's imperfect. And I think in the last mm. 10 years, it's taken a few punches. But the fact that everybody could access healthcare. I thought I wanted to be a part of that. And also because I was so early in my career, I just thought, you know, when you're, when you work for the NHS, you have your finger on the pulse Mm. of what's happening out there. And that was really important. And I always say to my students, you know, make sure you do some years in the NHS before you go privately. So you Mm. know what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think when you are trained here, particularly as a clinical psychologist and the government pays for your training, It feels as if you're betraying the system by going privately. I didn't have that because I did all of my training in the States. The government didn't pay for my training. So I didn't have that same level of loyalty, if that makes sense. Mm, Yeah. To the system. And, you know, about nine years in, I I started to have my children. The NHS was starting to change. Our consultant moved on. Resources dwindled. It wasn't the same team it was. And, you know, after my first baby, I went part-time private. Mm. And then after my second, there was another big change in the NHS service. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to do some teaching now. And I'm going to go full-time, you know, part-time private, part-time teaching and make Mm. that shift. And so I did. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it was just a very sort of natural process for you. And it's really worked out. So far, so good. I mean, <laughs> still fighting the good fight, Harriet. <laughs> so obviously, like during the pandemic, I know we've seen so many more referrals, haven't we, with mental health generally, but also sort of eating disorders. So what would you say, like, you know, why do you think that's so? What's your sort of interpretation of this, of, about why this is happening? I mean, with regards to eating disorders specifically or with regards to mental health in general? I guess I'm so interested in both, really, actually. Mm. I mean, yeah, perhaps first talk generally about mental health and then maybe a bit more specifically with eating disorders. I mean, look, we're living in unprecedented times and there is so much uncertainty. And this is the closest in this generation that's ever seen you know, a war of sorts. And one might say this is kind of like modern warfare in a sense. <laughs> and there's been a major shakeup to the economy, to education, to you know, people are dying. There's been a tremendous amount of fear in the air. So people have been destabilized in a way that they haven't been. And so it's little wonder that you know, being isolated for long periods of time, sometimes by oneself, can be tremendously depressing and depressive, or mm. being locked in with a family that perhaps isn't supportive or helpful, especially during a time when you're supposed to be spreading your wings and leaving the home, like, you know, those people going off to uni, incredibly difficult, you know, dealing with illness, dealing with 
the economy and not being able to find jobs, not being able to attend school. I think people have had so many reasons to be frightened. And I think that's why we're seeing this mental health crisis. You know, with regards to eating disorders, I think if it's not eating disorders, it'll be something else. But I think eating disorders are experiencing their time in history right now. They are a way of expressing distress that has become accepted and popular in culture. And I think that's how mental illness works. There are times in history where different illnesses are more prominent. And right now it happens to be eating disorders. And that's a whole other conversation. But Mm. I think that they lend themselves well to Mm. trying to find control and kind of stasis in a system where everything feels out of control. I can't control what's going to happen with my schooling. I can't control what's going to happen with my job. I can't control if I get COVID or not, but I can, damn it, control what goes into my mouth. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a very true, isn't it? I mean, it it makes so much sense, doesn't it? I think when you're just talking about that wider picture of mental health and how much uncertainty and fear there is around Mm. and, yeah, food is one of the very, very few things that we can control, isn't it? And it's almost like personally your thing to control. Very few yeah, other absolutely. things are like that. Mm. Well, it, indeed. And also food's incredibly comforting. Yeah. You know, so many of our comforts have been taken away. We can't go to the theater and we can't listen to music and we can't go out with friends and we can't go to the museums and, and, and all of that's taken, taken away. We, you know, we can't see our loved ones. And yet, you know, food feels nice and it's supposed to. Mm. And I think it's, you know, obviously there's the restriction end, but there's also the, I think some comfort eating is entirely normal, but that kind of excessive and repetitive comfort eating that kind of turns into binge eating, you can see how that can happen over this period because we're very limited on the pleasures Mm. that we have been afforded during this pandemic period. Yeah, no, it's so very true, isn't it? And and it's very quickly, I think very quickly, and we can fall into the habit as well, can't we? When when our, our other sort of self-soothing, pleasurable, pleasurable activities are off limits, yeah, we very much fall into the habit of kind of using food as the sort of number one turn to. And, you know, like, I agree with you absolutely, like some emotional eating, turn to food for pleasure is absolutely acceptable as a human being. But, you know, <laughs> you don't want it to ideally be your one way to cope do you and but if everything else is stripped away of course we're going to use it much more absolutely exactly exactly I couldn't have said it better so I know that Courtney you're passionate about kind of good therapy you know in treating eating disorders I guess and other mental health conditions but specifically with eating disorders can you say a bit more about what you mean by good therapy and how you personally and maybe other people within your clinic might approach treatment of an eating disorder sure I mean what I mean by good therapy first and foremost is a strong therapeutic connection and I know it sounds obvious but All the research says that despite or in spite of the tools you have in your toolbox, whether you're psychodynamically trained or whether you're CBT trained or whether you're, you know, you're more humanistic in your approach. At the end of the day, the factor that's most predictive of change is the strength of the therapeutic relationship. (laughs) Because recovering from an eating disorder takes tremendous courage and you have to put your faith You really have to put a lot of faith in what your therapist says. You know, your therapist is saying, you can do this. You can try this. These are the ways we can do it. If you don't have faith in that relationship, that that relationship can hold you, 
all of that, nothing's going to happen. So for me, good therapy starts with the right therapeutic fit. And, you know, all of, almost everybody on my team is integratively trained and others may disagree with me, but there's no one right therapist for everybody. Mm. And so what we try and do is kind of, I always have like a 20 minute consult with somebody. And what I'm doing there is I'm really trying to get a sense of who they are, the therapy they've had, what's worked, what hasn't worked. I ask them if they have preferences for a man or a woman, older, younger, do they know, do they not? You know, I just kind of get a sense of what might be needed. And then I try and match make mm-hmm. to someone on my team. Now, sometimes I get it wrong, mm. but most of the time I get it right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think good therapy starts with the right therapeutic fit. Beyond that, I think it's about tailoring the treatment to the individual rather than trying to stick the individual into the treatment. I know that, for example, a lot of NHS treatment, and this is shifting, but traditionally has focused on CBT. Mm-hmm. Now, CBT is a wonderful therapy. And you know, if somebody comes to us with you know, a binge eating disorder or bulimia nervosa, and they're newly diagnosed, and they've had no other therapy, mm-hmm. then I think the NICE guidelines are correct. I think trying CBTE is a good thing. But most of the time, and I think I've noticed this more and more over the past few years, the complexity of the histories that we're seeing when people come to us, these stories, these formulations don't always lend themselves well to just a straight CBT treatment. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I think it's really good therapy is about thinking about what has worked for this person, what hasn't, what are their strengths and resources How can we leverage those? Do we need to make this a more systemic approach? Do we need to bring the family in? Does this person need to make sense of? Is this person in an action-oriented place in recovery? Some people come to us and they said, I know I have a problem, but I don't want to make changes. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's spend, maybe your therapy is looking at the pros and cons of what it might be like. Let's talk about what it would be like to change. Yeah, that's a piece of work. So I think good therapy is about the right therapeutic fit and tailoring the therapy to where that person is at that time. Mm, Yeah, wonderful to hear. And I'm completely with you. (laughs) You know, I myself have come from a counseling background rather Mm. than clinical psychology, although Mm. I work with lots of clinical psychologists in my part-time role in the NHS. Mm. But, um, I, I do absolutely. I'm so with you that I think the relationship is the foundation, isn't it? Before you can even, you can't even get off first base without a therapeutic relationship. Yep. And also as well, just kind of drawing, you know, integratively on different approaches and really tailoring that to fit the individual. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's wonderful to hear that. And, um, <laughs> and well, you know, I'm a counseling psychologist, Harriet. So I kind oh, of have okay. one, one foot in the kind of counseling psychotherapy realm and one foot in the clinical realm. So. Oh, yeah. It's very interesting, actually, because you're probably quite similar to me in a way, because I came yeah. from a counseling background, but then mm. I've been very fortunate to work in an adult eating disorder service quite a lot throughout my career with clinical psychologists. So I feel I've kind of had the best of both, which has been wonderful. So, Absolutely. Um, and, it, and it does make you see how different professions think about treatment yes. as well, you know, and you form your own view and you find your own feet. 
yeah, <laughs> no, it's a very true. So, and when you're sort of working integratively, like what are some of the different therapies that you might sort of pull in? And I, I guess, again, it's going to be very unique to each therapist and kind of how they work, but are there particular ones maybe that you, or you've already mentioned CBTE and it sounds like motivational enhancement therapy as well, but I'm yep, wondering. Absolutely. Yeah. But I'm wondering, are there other kind of therapies that you feel that you really kind of strongly um, resonate with? Well, yes, I think I am first and foremost a schema therapist. I'm an accredited schema therapist, which is an integrative therapy. And so I work largely from a schema perspective in helping people kind of formulate and you know develop healthier, kind of a healthier adult and challenge critical voices and challenge what we call coping modes. And uh, the eating disorder you know, could be divided up into a number of, of what we call coping modes, but you know, they're seen as ways of coping with distress that are no longer useful to the individual. You know, we're trying to grow the healthier part, challenge the bully and the critic, and just actually defend against the bully and the critic, and then challenge these kind of what we call coping modes, saying, you know, you, know, you were useful for me at one time, but I have other resources now. Mm-hmm. So I think schema therapy is something we, we pull largely from. And many of we have a collective interest as a team in schema therapy. Other than that, I'd say that we work a lot with the body. We love like sensory motor psychotherapy. We're a big fan of Janina Fisher's work. I think she's mm-hmm. great. We, you know, and I think, you know, schema and internal family systems, they kind of map onto each other very well. We've got another therapist on the team who's a cognitive analytic therapist. So again, very integrative. You know, one of our psychologists is a certified yoga teacher. And so she does a lot of embodiment and embodied work. So I think we're moving kind of into trauma a bit mm, as a practice yeah. because I think the modern thinking is that it's all trauma <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah and I think as well it's it's often needed isn't it that kind of trauma dealing with the underlying trauma dealing with the roots of the problem for that real sort of holistic full healing yeah I think often we do have to go there don't we and it can be quite painful but it is the way often the only way out is through almost to you know to like deal with some of that as and when you're ready absolutely and I think you know techniques like rescripting chair work those are reparenting in imagery you know we do a lot of that in schema therapy and you do a lot of that in internal family systems I think whatever you call it it's integrative work and it's it's kind of rescripting work and you know, I think we've got a couple of people who are trained in EMDR as well. So again, you know, I think there are a lot of ways in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, it sounds like it, it, it's wonderful just to have a, such a range of expertise and different therapies to draw on, isn't it? But it sounds like as well, you know, you and your team really share the sort of fundamentals of how you approach treatment. And that obviously, you know, works really well. I hope so. I mean, I'm trying to build a bit of a family here where we kind of have similar values and whatnot, but it, you know, it takes time to build a team, but mm-hmm. I'm feeling really positive about the team that we have now. And, and we have a lot of fun together as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And no, really important, isn't it? I think when mm-hmm. anyone works in mental health, you need to kind of, yeah, make sure you're filling up your own cup and making it fun too. <laughs> yeah. And I think as therapists, we're not always the best at that. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, very true, isn't it? I mean, I think I know from my own experience, definitely getting into therapy as the wounded healer. And, you know, it's taken a bit of learning really to, yeah, making sure that I'm not sort of going down that road. And yeah, we have to really look after ourselves. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) So Courtney, you've got a big question here, but in terms of like, you know, I guess, you know, you and I, we're often sort of seeing people once they're you know, in their eating disorder or mental health condition, they're already sort of struggling and, you know, having a lot of difficulties in their daily lives. What's your view really on how, as a society, in a way that we can really, you know, change the mental health of the next generation from a much younger age and do more of that sort of prevention work? Mm, That's a great question. I mean, look, I think one, from an eating disorders perspective, I think what we can do as parents is model at home. I think that's one of the most important things we can do. We model intuitive eating, call it what you like, normal eating. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and because people, I think kind of the diet culture, particularly the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, it was so extreme Mm -hmm. that it's just kind of permeated society. People don't even know that they're saying the wrong things. In yeah. a way, I think the new generation, the younger generations are more switched on. And I actually am feeling quite hopeful that we're mm. moving into this anti-diet movement, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely love. But, you know, what I say to my mothers and fathers is be careful about the way you talk about your own body. Little ears are everywhere. Be careful. Make sure you speak positively about your body, even if you don't feel it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's not. I always say it's not your fault that you struggle, but mm-hmm. it is your responsibility to make it different for your children and the next generation. So I think that's one thing about trying to model that all bodies are good bodies, comfort in your own body, you know, let your children touch you and, you know, experience your body in a way. Mm-hmm. I think it's about eating normally around the table. I think we don't eat around the table enough with our kids anymore. I mean, I certainly don't. And I try (laughs) and kind of thinking about the rules we have about food and why we have them and are they serving you now? So I think that's one of the main things we can do to help our children develop, you know, body acceptance and neutrality to help them view their bodies as kind of a functional rather than ornamental, you know, focusing on what their bodies can do, you know, oh, you know, aren't you strong or look how much you can, you know, how you can lift that up or, you know, things like that, or that, you know, it's fantastic that you look at all the amazing things your body can do rather Mm -hmm. than what your body looks like. I think that's really important and focusing less on appearance No, I'm not saying it's not okay for you to say that somebody thinks somebody's beautiful, but let's not make that the only compliment you give them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I do think that social media has something to say for itself. And I think changes are happening. I think young people particularly, but all of us as human beings, we are so susceptible to advertising. Mm -hmm. And I do think that social media platforms have a responsibility to limit the amount of damaging material that goes out. I think that Mm -hmm. is going to help. So yes, that's what I would say could help change the mental health for the next generation. Great um, advice there. Thank you for sharing that. 
And I'm definitely with you that I feel more hopeful. I think with the next sort of generation, I think Gen Z are really great at challenging, aren't they? Some of those old sort of diet culture ideals yeah. and, you know, looking at things differently, sort of body positivity, diversity. Yeah, it does fill me with hope, actually, just how we definitely have come quite a long way in some respects, haven't we, from the sort of 80s, 90s early 2000s of that extreme dieting but like you said as well in a way but now we've got social media as well haven't we whereas at least back in the day we didn't have all of that and then, yeah 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 absolutely no no I feel I do feel positive I think there's a change coming <laughs> yeah <laughs> so Courtney do you have anything that you wanted to sort of mention in terms of anything like new coming up at your clinic or anything kind of exciting on the radar that you'd, you'd like to kind of let the listeners know about? Well, I would say that our team is growing and, you know, we've really tried to respond to the increased demand by getting really good people on board. And I'm very excited because I've just found a couple of people that I just, I've been looking forever. <laughs> <laughs> really pleased to be welcoming a couple of new people on the team. We're hoping to start running some groups in the new year. And what we're hoping to do is start running a yoga class for those struggling with body image difficulties and eating disorders. And that's kind of the biggest thing that I want to try and, and develop this year, because I think it's so important to be embodied, to get people back inside their bodies. Because with eating disorders, you, you, you don't listen to the body. You, you look externally for cues as to what you should eat and how you should feel. And so I think a big part of healing is about starting to kind of really tune into sensations in the body, emotions, hunger, all of that. And I think that kind of a yoga approach is a wonderful way to do that. So we're, we're hoping to start a class sometime in the new year. So that's exciting. Mm, very exciting. And yeah. do you, do you, does your clinic, is it face-to-face sort of -face and online? Is it like a mixture or yeah, how does it work? Well, we're just trying to respond to what's happening out there. <laughs> <laughs> We've got four offices here and I'm the only one in right now. <laughs> Everybody else is working mm -hmm. from home, but all of us are doing a hybrid model. So we're all in a bit and home a bit. So we're just trying to respond. We're hoping that as everybody is, that we'll be able to get to do more face-to-face -face work going forward. But it really depends upon the comfort level of the therapist and the clients as well. So we, we just try mm -hmm. and meet everyone's needs and do the best we can, given the pressures we're under right now with COVID. Mm. And where can people find out more about you and also the Ultimate Clinic? Sure. So we've got our website and that's the best place to go. And that's altumhealth.co.uk. And that's A-L-T-U-M, altumhealth.co.uk. We're also on Instagram right now. It's um, at Dr. Courtney Raspin. We're thinking about shifting that to the clinic, but it's at Dr. Courtney Raspin. There, you know, people can see all of our, our monthly blogs that we put up, which offer a lot of tips on mental health. So there we've got a Facebook page, but I'd say the Instagram and our website are the best places to go to learn more about us. It's really easy. If you want to have a free 20-minute chat from the website, you can just book a consultation. It's either going to be with me or another senior member of team. And it's an opportunity to ask questions to see whether or not we might be able to help. Hey, lovely. Well, I'll make sure all of those details are in the show notes. Thank you very much, Harriet.
So, Courtney, I just want to really thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and, you know, sharing your story and about the clinic and all the valuable work that you're doing. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Harriet, and Happy New Year to you. And I hope you continue to stay healthy and well. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Dr. Courtney's info in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. I'd like to remind you, I do have an online course, 10 Steps to Intuitive Eating. It's £99, 25 videos, 29 lectures, email support from me. It's a really affordable way to get support if you're really trying to heal your relationship with food. So do go and check it out, theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you would follow, rate and review because it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today. And I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.